0: The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 4 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC4. And this is Secret Church 4, Episode 5. This is the picture. When we call Him Father, it really shows two things. Number one, we express our reverence to Him. Matthew chapter 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is so important to remember. When we pray, how we express our reverence to him as Father. When, when you think about a f- father figure, this is someone you revere. You are a child. He's the father. The picture is really a lot of times in our praying, in our prayer lives, we try to switch the roles. And we almost talk to God like he's the child and we're the father. God, this is what would be best for my life. This is what would be best for you to do in this particular situation, in this particular situation. We even have this idea that prayer is controlling God. Prayer is getting God to do what we want him to do. That's not the picture of prayer that Jesus is giving us when he says, pray to your father. We express our reverence to him. We bow before him and say, you are father. I am child. That means you know what is best for your children. We express our reverence to him. And second, we enjoy our relationship with him. It's reverence and relationship put together in one name for God, as father. Reverence and relationship, it's a picture of intimacy. To call God father presupposes we have a close, intimate relationship with God like a son and a father, a daughter and a father. What an incredible picture. You have intimacy with the creator of the universe. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and if we are children, we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we may share in his sufferings in order that one day we'll share in his glory. We are children, folks. We are heirs, heirs of glory that is waiting us. If we share in his sufferings, he says, the Bible says we will share in his glory. Continuing on, in these titles, he is king. This is all over Scripture. 2,800 different times the term king is used, but not, often, not always to refer to God. But he is the great king above all gods. He is the king of kings, Revelation 17 says. He is our king, he is judge. We're going to talk later about the judgment of God, justice of God. Genesis 18 shows us this picture. Will, you not, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Isaiah 41, I love this. Uh, you go back and read it, but he's judging false gods. He's telling false gods, you, you, you set forth your arguments before me. I'm the judge of all false gods. Next, he is redeemer. To redeem is to rescue or deliver someone or something by paying a price. This is the beauty of Job 19. In the middle, this is one of the beautiful passages in Job when he's going through the suffering that he's experiencing and he says, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, I will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What a passage. I know that my Redeemer lives. He is potter. Oh Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. He is the light. He is not the light. He is light. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He is the rock. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Just and upright is he. He is our fortress. We started with this in Psalm 50, 46. Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is our shield. He's our shield, Psalm chapter 3, and he is a consuming fire. This is the picture that you have in Exodus when God reveals himself on Mount Sinai. Come to Hebrews chapter 12, but come before him with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. I, I know that that doesn't even begin to exhaust the names of God. We haven't, we, we didn't even get into the names of Jesus. That, that's got to be another secret church. I mean,. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the final amen. Jesus is the bread of life. He is Christ, our creator, our deliverer, everlasting father. He is God. He is good shepherd, he is the great shepherd, he is the great high priest, he is the holy one, he is the image of the invisible God, he is the great I am, he is the judge of the living and the dead, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is majestic and mighty, and no one compares to him. He is the power of God. He is the resurrection the life. He is the supreme sacrifice. He is the way, the truth, and life. He is the very word of God made flesh. Jesus is all of these things, and we cannot reduce him to a poor, puny Savior who is just begging for you to accept him. He is infinitely worthy of all glory in all the universe, And he does not need you to accept him. You and I desperately need him. We need him for every breath we breathe. The only way our heart is beating in this room tonight is because Jesus is giving it rhythm at this very moment. God, restore the glory of the name of Jesus Christ in your church today. His name is good. His name is great. His name is worthy. God, make us a people who have deep reverence, deep fear for the name of God. Okay, let's move on. Here we go. Attributes of God. Attributes of God. Now, what do you mean when you talk about attributes? Well, I want you to think about attributes in a variety of different ways. First of all, all of God's attributes are personal, meaning they describe who God is. They're personal. They describe who God is. We're not talking about what God does here. We'll get to that in a second, how that relates. We're talking about the essence of who God is, his essential nature. And what's key is, I just want to say this to the side. This isn't in your notes, but we need to realize when we talk about different attributes of God, I think we're going to look at 14 different attributes of God. And I'm not even saying that these are the only 14 attributes, but they're the ones we're going to talk about. But I don't want you to picture this as 14 different pieces to the pie, We have this tendency to think about God as his love over here and his mercy over here and his justice over here. That's not true. God is in his very essence, he is love. Not just part of God is love, all of God is love, all of God is mercy, all of God is justice, all of God is wrath, all of God is omnipotence. These are not just different pieces to a pie you put together. They are all, the beauty of the attributes of God is found in their unity. It's in 1 John, in the beginning, just like we saw a second ago, it says God is light. In the end of 1 John, it says God is love. And sometimes we have this tendency to think, well, at this point in history, God was Love, But in this point in history, God was wrath. Old Testament we see God as wrath. New Testament we see God as love. That's not true. It's not true. God is always love and always wrath and always mercy and always grace and all that he is. The beauty is how they all come together. That's what we're going to see. They describe who he is. It's not a collection of attributes that are just added together. They are the whole of who he is. All of, that, all of God's attributes not just personal, they are practical. What I mean by that is they help us understand how he acts. Now, we see his attributes at different points, revealed in different ways. There's no question that it, at times we see the justice of God very clearly. But it doesn't mean that he's just at that point and wasn't at another point. Doesn't ever, we can't ever say, you can't ever say that God was more loving at this point in history than this point in history or more loving at this time than at this time. You can't say that because, well, number one, he's all love, and if you're all, then you can't be more at any point. That was kind of deep for 815. But anyway, you, you, got, you got what I'm saying there. And the second reason you can't say God is more loving at this point than he was at this point is because of this next thing because all of God's attributes are perfect. To say that He's more loving at another point than than this particular point over here implies that He wasn't perfectly loving all the time, and He is. Your heavenly Father is perfect. All of His attributes are perfect. He is perfectly loving, perfectly gracious, perfectly just. Personal, they describe who he is. Or practical, they, they help us understand how he acts. And they're perfect. All of God's attributes are excellent, perfect, complete in every way. All of, that, all of God's attributes are permanent. He doesn't gain attributes. He doesn't lose attributes. He is holy. He was holy. He has always been holy. He always will be holy. He has always been loving. He is loving. He will always be loving. His attributes are permanent intrinsic, unchangeable qualities, which we'll talk about more. All of God's attributes are praiseworthy. We praise Him for His love. We praise Him for His wrath. We praise Him for His justice. We praise Him for His mercy. All of these things. Now, this is so key, and we're going to camp out here for just a minute, but we've got to be on the same page here on these two truths when we think about the attributes of God. Truth number one, God's glory is His supreme passion. God's glory is his supreme passion. Isaiah 43, he says, I've created you for my glory. A few chapters later, when he's talking about what he's doing among his people, he says, I I do this for my own sake. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. We could go from cover to cover in Scripture and show from Genesis to Revelation, God is orchestrating all of history to put his glory on display. God's supreme passion is his glory. Now we don't think like this. We think, if I were to ask you the question, why does God love you? We would think, well, because I'm lovable. And that, that's it's not what Scripture teaches. say, so what do you mean? God loves you for his glory. God loves you for his glory. Why did you just die on a cross? Well, for my sins. Pay the price for my sins. Well, yes, in part, no question. But not ultimately. What did Jesus say in John twelve as he was preparing to go to the cross? He said, Father, glorify your name. Romans chapter three, verse twenty one through twenty six. He did this to demonstrate his justice, to demonstrate the character of God he went to the cross. He went there for his glory. God lives, God works to exalt himself. God is a radically God-centered God. Now that that's a little later in it. That's thick. God is radically God-centered. You say, well, what do you mean? That that almost sounds kind of selfish, that God lives to exalt himself. Well, let's ask a follow-up question. Who else would you have him exalt? At the very moment God exalts anyone or anything else, he is no longer what? God. God alone has the right to exalt himself. And all throughout Scripture he is showing that right. His supreme passion is his glory. We don't don't think like this. We don't grow up in in Sunday school writing on our pictures that we draw. We write God loves me. We don't write God loves himself and, and send that home. But the picture is God is exalting himself. Now you say, well, what what does this mean for us then? The beauty of it is God's glory is his supreme passion. Second truth, God's glory is our supreme satisfaction. Think about it this way, if God is perfectly, infinitely loving and all that is love is summed up in God, then what is the greatest way he could show love to you or me by giving us what? himself, enjoyment in himself, glory in himself, knowledge of himself. This is our supreme satisfaction, knowing his glory. The beauty of it is our satisfaction is found in fulfilling the purpose of God, glorifying his name. This is where they come together. And this is so key. When we're going to talk about these attributes, we need to realize that this is, this is the picture here. Because when we think about God's love and God's wisdom, maybe, we begin to think about things that happen in our lives. When things, tragedy hits, and hurtful things happen in our lives, and we begin to point the finger at the love of God. You don't love. You're not wise. Look at what you let happen. And we start questioning the attributes of God because our, our happy world has been turned upside down. The picture is God is not revolving this universe around our happy worlds. Now, this is difficult. It's thick, and we're going to talk about God and evil later on, but the picture we have in Scripture is the ultimate end of all things is the glory of God, and the beauty of it is that involves the satisfaction of his people, and that, when we understand this, we will see God's love truly, and we will see God's love in all of its beauty and in an incomprehensible beauty. So just hold on to that. It's very important. This is why the psalmist can say, one thing I ask of the Lord, this one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He knows his satisfaction is found in seeing the glory of God. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. This is the beauty. This is not, don't read Psalm 84 and think, this means I need to be excited about going to church. Just stop going to church. So did he just say stop going to church? Yes, you are the church. It's not Old Testament religion. We don't have to go to a place to encounter the glory of God. You and I have the privilege of experiencing the satisfaction of God's glory on a daily basis. So let our souls yearn, even faint, to experience his glory moment by moment, day by day. And yes, go, gather together with other believers and give him the glory that he is due. But experience his glory as your supreme satisfaction on a daily basis and spurn everything in this world that would keep you from experiencing his glory. This is a way to live a God-centered life. And this is the way to supreme satisfaction. Okay, here we go. Moving on. Attributes of God. His greatness and his goodness. That's how we're going to split them up. Some people split up the attributes of God into different things. Communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes, which means communicable attributes are attributes that he shares with us. Incommunicable attributes are attributes that he doesn't share with us. I'm going to take greatness and goodness and kind of use those as two categories, seven in each. Tozer said, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. That's a strong statement. Are our thoughts unworthy of him? That is idolatry, he says. Greatness of God, is independence, his spirituality, his eternity, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, and his immutability. Let's start with Independence. When we talk about the independence of God, we're talking about how God is both self-existent and self-sufficient. Self-existent and self-sufficient. We'll take those one by one. First, the self-existence of God. Does God exist? That's a, a valid question for our topic of discussion tonight. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14 verse 1 says. And I want to I be very careful here because uh, the nature of the way that this night is structured is, um, is all throughout saying things, saying truths, what I believe the scriptures teach. At the same time, we're not taking time to unpack all of these things in depth. And it almost can seem like we're just callously running through these things. And, oh, there's a simple answer to God and evil. Okay, we can address that. That's not what I want to communicate. But I do want to give us some foundations to stand on. And I just want to say that because we're, we're basically addressing here atheism and the idea that there is no God. We need to realize, I just want to kind of give that caveat before we go into this. We need to realize that to say there is no God is a virtually unprovable statement. People say, well, the, the, pro- the burden of proof is on the, the theists, those who believe in God, to prove that God exists. On the contrary, the proof, burden of proof lies on the atheist. To say there is no God, to say that something is not there, someone or something is not there, that means you have to have searched out all possibilities that it might be there. If I'm going to say someone is not in this room, then I've got to search this entire room to see if that person is here. In order to say God is not there, that means you have to have searched all knowledge to see if God is there. And if you have searched all knowledge, then that means you have all knowledge. By definition, that makes you God, and therefore you deny your own divinity with your statement that there is no God. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't add up. It's. It's. It's an absolute negation, and it, and it doesn't. It doesn't hold water. You can't say there is no God. So you've got to at least admit there's a willingness. That you've got to at least admit that there's a possibility that God exists. And so we go from that and. Okay, we go from that and we, we, we say, oh, how do we know God exists? And I believe scripture shows us that God has revealed himself to us very clearly. And I want you to think about it just in three ways. Again, this is like tackling the existence of God in two minutes. That's what I mean when I, I kind of gave that caveat. And I'm not saying it's this easy. Oh, yeah, well, I can answer that in two minutes and we can move on. But some foundations. Number one, look at creation. Genesis 1-1, obviously. It's, it's important to ask, where does the universe come from? Astrophysical evidence, obviously, scientists point us to this Big Bang theory that however many thousands or millions or billions, however you uh, look at that, however many years ago that there was a Big Bang that caused the universe to come into existence. The ultimate question is not what happened at that point. The ultimate question is what caused it to happen. Ex nihilo nihilo fed is a phrase that means out of nothing, nothing comes. So if I've got in my hand... Nothing, then what can you get from that? You get nothing. Out of nothing, nothing comes. And you think about this in a threefold progression. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. That makes sense? Something begins to exist, and something has to cause it to exist. Whatever begins to exist has to cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a what? has a cause. What the Big Bang requires is the universe began to exist and was created out of nothing. This makes it very awkward for the atheist or evolutionist who believes that the universe came into existence out of nothing. How did it begin to exist without a cause? Out of nothing, nothing comes. I think it was Aristotle who said nothing is what rocks dream about. The picture is out of nothing, nothing comes. So you've got to believe, either you've got to have faith that it just came out of nothing with no cause, or you've got to have faith that there was a cause behind it. And this is where we come to uh, intelligent design, which we'll talk about in a second. But, But... I love this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes from it's a guy named Robert Zastro, one-time director of NASA's, uh, NASA's Institute for Space Studies. He says, uh, The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always believed the word of the Bible, but we scientists do not expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning because we have had, until recently, such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. At this moment, it seems as though science will never ever be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries." (laughs) Isn't that great? Look at creation. Second, related to that, look at design, look at design, and by this I mean God leaves God leaves the imprints of his glory upon the design of the earth. He says in Romans 1, since what we have known about God has planted them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, God has revealed his glory through creation. It's Psalm chapter 19, first part of Psalm 19. Creation reveals the glory of God. And you look, you look, even at scientific pictures, And you look at the fact that if the earth was was just slightly closer to the sun, we would all burn up instantly. If it was just slightly farther away from the sun, that we would freeze over. This is the picture. If you got, sometimes it's been described, uh, it's kind of the picture, illustration of the watchmaker, that the intricacies of creation point to a designer behind them. You don't take, say you take a watch and take all the pieces of the watch apart, put it in a bag, and just shake it up. Will it come out like this? No, you've got to have someone who will design it. And this is the picture. And I, I praise God for for many people, very, very sharp, very smart people, very intellectual people, philosophical, philosoph- philosophers, scientists, it's getting late, who... Uh, who are are working very hard when it comes to intelligent design. And there's actually a whole new movie out called Expelled talking about how these intelligent design theorists have been ostracized in the scientific community. But there's a lot of strong discussion going on. And what's really interesting is just not so you're not misled, intelligent design is not just supported by Christians. Intelligent design as a theory and science is supported by non-Christians, even by people who don't believe in God but at least are willing to admit there had to be a cause when this thing started. There had to be a designer behind the whole deal. One time agnostic Paul Davies said, through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as a brute fact. Look at creation, look at design, and look at morality. Look at morality. What I mean by that is the existence of objective moral values points to a moral creator. Romans 2 talks about how all of us have a moral law written on our hearts. We all know right and wrong. We have an awareness of right and wrong. We have an awareness when we do wrong or when we do right. And this comes from a moral law giver. If evolution is true, if there is no God, then by what basis do we have a moral law? It's not there. We're just product of evolutionary processes. And there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no basis for a moral lawgiver. Nietzsche knew this when he declared God is dead in the 20th century. And he said the 20th century as a result of that will be stripped of meaning and value and morality in life. He said it would be the bloodiest century we've ever seen. And you see that even reflected. He knew. He knew as an atheist who said there is no God that that radically affects the moral foundations of a culture because that strips a culture of the moral lawgiver. Michael Ruse, an agnostic philosopher of science, shows this. He's right. He says, the position of the modern evolutionist is the morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. In other words, it has no foundation. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves to some law of love, something that says this is love. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. I'm not saying that if you're an atheist that you can't live a moral life or believe that there's morals. The question is, where does that moral, mor- morality come from? Where does that moral law come from? The question is, if God does not exist, then do objective moral values exist? It undercuts the whole picture. The fact that we have morality written on our hearts points us to the existence of God. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at radical.net.